Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode 196, recorded February 28th, 2015. So today is our first go at Star Trek Edge of Forever miniseries. So we're going to do issue number one and two today. This this is so cool for me. Um, I'm not sure, sure about you, but between Where No Man Has Gone Before and City on the Edge of Forever... They're my clear top two episodes from the Taws, uh, Taws run, and uh, I just really enjoy this story. I think Harlan Ellison did a great job with it, and it's so interesting coming back to it and uh, seeing the original script, which I've heard, always heard was different from what they filmed. And now we're seeing the details. So being a big Star Trek fan even back then, you, you never did read any of the published uh, scripts? Because from what no. I've gathered, it seems like this this script was has been out there for a while that, that a lot of fans have already read it. Yes, I was not one of them. Hmm. Hmm. Surprise. Yeah. The whole time I was reading this, I was like, oh, I bet Ken already knew all this. No. No. I've just read about the script, and I've read about some of the uh, infighting back and forth. Um and then when you start reading the letters pages at the back of the book, mm-hmm. uh, Harlan Ellison's actually taking part in the um, in the chatter. It's it's really interesting how he doesn't want to talk about the details of the disagreements he had with the producers, um, but he does talk about the many 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 revisions he did to the script. Um, at the behest of various different producers and and whatever, um, so he he makes a pretty clear case that at least he he tried his best to accommodate uh, the the lot of the the large amount of input that he was given. But um, right, and, and it sounds like he was he wrote this before the show had ever even started filming. So this was his original draft was. Was before he even, you know, before they even had a good understanding of what the show was going to even be about, or sure, you know, who the main characters okay. were going to be. Yeah, definitely had it had the characters fleshed out. So they didn't know who the main characters were going to be, or okay, well, they didn't know that McCoy was going to be there because he's not in the story. Because he wasn't in the original pilot. Remember, he he came right. much later. Right. Amazing. Amazing. So, anyways, it's uh, I'm I'm enjoying it. I haven't read the uh, the rest of it, but the first two issues quite good. Yes, interesting. Lots of com- you're going to hear a lot of lot of comparing and contrasting <laughs> uh, as we as we do comments for it. But great story. Um, I think would have made a a long episode. Was this <laughs> is this long enough to at least be a two parter? It, it does seem dense. Right. But there is a lot of great artwork in it that, that takes up several pages and, and that kind of pads the issues out a little bit. 
Right. And the artwork is excellent, as you'd expect from IDW. Um, it seems like they really took their time with this. I haven't noticed a lot of, like, mistakes, like ships turning into different classes of ships right. in the middle of the story or anything like that. So I, I think they took their Well, their the art is by J.K. Woodward, who did the Star Trek, the, uh, Star Trek and um, Doctor Who crossover, which, which I really mm-hmm. enjoyed the artwork for. So, Right. This guy knows the And now that stuff. you mention it, and now that you mention it, uh, definitely I recognize that uh, that style, that colorful, uh, what, chalky, watercolory, um, yeah, kind of. kind of style. I'm not quite sure how to explain it, but it 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 does seem like a, like like painting, right? A painting style. It is a painting style, and I like it a lot. Okay. Yeah, right. So, yeah, so you want to go ahead and get into the first issue, and then we can love it. talk about it. Love it. Okay. So I get to do the first issue, issue number one, published date June 2014. Original teleplay, Harlan Ellison. Adaptation, Scott and David Tipton. Art by J.K. Woodward. Letterer, Neil Yataki. Editor, Chris Ryle. The A cover is interesting and very artistic. The background is dark blue with white stars. The moon is huge and looks like a clock with Roman numerals. Marking the hours is the Enterprise, kind of like a clock hand. An eye is in the center of the Enterprise's saucer section, and it has a beam coming out from it and towards the reader that forms an orange walkway that a Starfleet officer is running down. The moon-slash-clock is overlooking the Manhattan skyline. Orange and white lettering tells us the story is based on Harlan Ellison's original teleplay. The B cover is the same as the A cover, but with a rusty color scheme rather than the mostly blue color scheme. The sub-cover has a fairy tale feel to it, featuring the head and upper torso of Lieutenant Rand, Kirk, and Spock. Behind them is a tall fairy tale looking city bathed in light. The Enterprise chronometers are running backwards, despite them being the most sophisticated time devices ever known. The ship arrives at a planet that is the source of a mysterious radiation trail that they believe is the source of the time distortion. Time. The topic makes Kirk think about how long they have been on their five-year mission. The long periods in space are hard on the crew, but despite continuous psych evaluations, some are changing under the stress. Some are even going sour. Meanwhile, in the quarters of crewman Beckwith, the large burly gold shirt is showing the colorful contents of a box to Lieutenant Lebec. Lebec is a junkie in a gold tunic, a bridge officer who Beckwith got hooked a year ago on the planet called Karkow. Since then, the super-addicting jewels of sound that look like multicolored gemstones made Lieutenant Lubeck the property of Beckwith. Lubeck practically begs for more of the stuff. Beckwith finally gives him a yellow one after Lubeck agrees to provide Beckwith with information about the planet's resources and get him on a landing party. Beckwith has set himself up in a lucrative business compliments of Starfleet. He travels around to new planets, 
gets the more connected locals hooked and extracts valuable goods from them. He brings the booty back to the ship to sell. Beckwith expects to retire a rich man by the end of his tour of duty. The drug hits Lebec hard. He feels ecstasy that turns even an ethical Starfleet officer bad just to keep feeling it one more time. The effect stays with Lebec into his duty shift at the ship's helm. Spock notices the starboard unit is running in the red. If he does not dampen it immediately, Lebec could blow out the entire drive. Lebec is removed from his post, and Spock tells him to get off the bridge if he is ill. Lebec walks the halls of the Enterprise like a zombie, as he crashes from ecstasy to just the opposite. He worked for two hours piloting the ship while impaired. He could have destroyed the ship and killed everyone aboard. Guilt turns to anger as he makes, as he makes his way to Beckwith's quarters. He shouts in from the open doorway that he is done and going to turn himself over to the captain. He is also going to turn in Beckwith. As Lebec leaves, Beckwith grabs the nearby blumped object that happens to contain his stash of drugs. He catches up to Lebec and in a blind rage crushes his head. Lebec is down and Beckwith is over him when two crewmen come around the corner and see the attacker and the victim. A female witness screams. Beckwith really blew it. He is a murderer, and everyone will soon know it. He runs through the halls and happens to come upon a red shirt that is messing with a phaser rifle in a hallway weapons cabinet. Beckwith takes the rifle and knocks the security man out with it. Unexpectedly, he leaves the rifle on the ground next to the unconscious security officer. He makes it to the transporter room, but Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Yeoman Ran are in hot pursuit. McCoy helps an injured crewman, while the others weigh their options for getting into the sealed transporter room. Kirk orders Ran to get the doors open. Without hesitation, she grabs the rifle off the ground and starts to cut into the door. They enter to find Beckwith is gone, and the transporter technician on duty is getting up off the ground. Kirk forms a landing party quickly, and they follow Beckwith down to the arid desert of a world that Kirk describes as an empty death of a world. They quickly determine this world is the source of the radiation that is turning their chronometers backwards. They search the planet with a nine-person team. They wonder how they can be warm and breathing on such an old world with an aging and dimming star. They finally find the source of the radiation in what appears to be a fanciful city on a mountain. Kirk says it's like a city at the edge of forever. They make their way into it and come upon what looks like statues of six old aliens. These guys are three times the size of an average human. They have long white beards and heads that shoot upward into the air like unwieldy king's crowns. Kirk sees movement and asks them, Who are you? You live in the city? They reply, and a they reply and commence a dialogue that is extremely close to what the Guardian of Forever said to Kirk and his party in the Taws TV episode. They are the guardians of the time vortex that forms in this very special location. Through the vortex, they have witnessed the passage of events, past, present, and future across the galaxy. 
They tell Kirk and company they are the first visitors they have had for 400,000 years. Kirk and company determine that these beings have the ability to take them to any point in time on any world. Spock asks them for a demonstration. The Guardians show them events in Earth's past, the age of the dinosaur, tall sailing ships from the 1600s. Finally, the 1930s is displayed, and Spock asks them to hold on this period. The Guardians warn them of the dangers in traveling to their own past. If not careful, small changes they make to events can ripple forward through time and change what is their history. Beth Beckwith sees an opportunity to escape and takes it. He makes a dash for the time vortex and knocks Spock to the ground in the process. Beckwith makes it into the vortex as Kirk fires on him with his phaser, apparently to no effect. Rand simply says, he's, he's gone. To be continued. Bum, bum, bum. Yes. Beckwith got away into the past. Which, quite frankly, if you were just reading this, it was like, what the heck was Beckwith thinking? I mean, he's on a ship, and he just killed somebody. So He wanted to get away. I didn't know what... Trying to get away. And the closest thing you can do is uh, down to the planet. But, man, he was really working without a plan. Right. So didn't he seem a little portly for a uh, Starfleet officer? <laughs> he's a little portly, but he's also pretty big. Right. I mean, he, he, he looks like a bouncer or something, or some, you know, some mook. Some, you know, gangster almost. Um, but yeah, he's kind of a bit, he, he's a big guy and heavy. Right. But uh, anyway, so what do you think? What do you think of the the story having Beck, what's his name again? Beckwith. Beckwith instead of McCoy being the catalyst of the change. Well, um... I think it's interesting. I mean, the whole idea that they're out there in the galaxy, many different worlds, uh, a lot of technology around, you'd think that, you know, the drug uh, options are pretty broad and could be even more intoxicating than the things we know of today on the planet. Um, So... The idea of that temptation being there, particularly if you have a bad apple uh, that's actually purposely hooking people on it, um, that all kind of makes sense despite the mm, semi-antiseptic, superior human um, world that Roddenberry created. Right. Which I understand is something that they really didn't like about it. And maybe it was Roddenberry himself, I don't know. Well, that had him change it from the drug well, dealer yeah, to yeah. an accidental overdose of cortisone or cortisine. Yeah, or cortisone, whatever that stuff was. Yeah, so shifting away from the idea that you would, number one, have a flaw in Starfleet officers that would be this kind of enterprising um, creep back with. And on the other side, you have an addictable um, Starfleet officer. I mean, this guy's a, lo- a lieutenant, a bridge officer. And um, so in those two ways, they're painting a less 
positive picture of what man could become. And I, I just don't think uh, Roddenberry liked that kind of thing, at least for his uh, his Starfleet personnel. Right. Yeah, I just want to know what these little crystals do exactly. They call dreams dream crystals, but yeah, and they said it has something to do with sound too. Yeah, sound crystal. Yeah, something. Right. So it isn't all just a, a tradi- you know a drug effect. There's also some kind of sound component to it, and w- which is all kind of confusing, quite frankly. But okay. Yeah, and where does he get his supply? You think he would run out eventually? You would think that, wouldn't you? I mean, especially if if well, maybe he's got well. Well, okay, on that topic, you'd think he'd run out unless he's got some way of manufacturing them. And we, you know, remember we don't have replicators yet. Um, and the other thing is, if he's got this scam going where he goes down to these different worlds that they visit and, and is addicting people on these planets and extracting things out of them, uh, where does, how does he get it to, back to the ship? Yeah. I mean, and where, and where does he where put he it? it? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, has he got some section of some storage area that he controls or something? He can move. He can move things in and out of it. It seems unlikely, but yeah, it seems very unlikely. And these these are primitives. You know, he's going to these primitive planets that you know he can't necessarily just wire the money to my you know Swiss bank account kind of thing. I mean, <laughs> he's taking something well, of value off the planet, or at least that's what he sure. says. And mind you, they don't all just go to primitive worlds. I mean, some of them, you know, some of them, you know, are members of the Federation or... Well, supposedly this is know, two but, years into their five-year mission going where no man has gone before. So you would think that these are no, okay. not Good affiliated Good with the Federation. Okay. But they also, I mean, they do come to planets that have technology too. Right. But, yeah, you're right. So in the cases where he does come to a planet with technology... Yeah, but they still wouldn't have any kind of communication or way of trade. Right. Uh, like wiring the money. <laughs> right. Good point. Good point on that, too. Yeah. So exactly how this guy works his scam is a little unclear. But uh, it's a whole side of humanity that typically is not talked about in TAWS, at least for um, you know the Starfleet officers. Right. It's not talked that much about in any of the Star Trek. Uh, I think a little they they delve in a little bit with um, Voyager and a little bit with um, Next Generation. Yeah, well, definitely the guy that that kidnapped Data um, in in the episode the most. Toys. Oh yeah, that was a good one. That was a really good one. Love that episode. Uh, but there's obviously there's where you're exposed that there are traitors and. <laughs> they can be really uh, as big a uh, douchebags as uh, you know, as some of the people we have today. Right. And I was thinking more of Barclay, you know, because he was actually part of the crew, and he became addicted mm-hmm. to, you know, the the holodeck, which which I right. kind of equated to also being addicted to, you know, some other external, uh, you know, substance that would make you live in another world kind of thing. And and then he got to the point where he'd rather live in that world than any other world, just like right. people who are alcoholics and other things uh, become addicted to, you know, feeling outside of the real world. So I thought that was their way of kind of doing this kind of story where someone's addicted to something that's not necessarily good. Right. Without showing them shoot up or swallow these little crystals or, you know, something like that. 
Right. So, well, uh, also um, in the Taws era, by Rod, part of Roddenberry's, Roddenberry's edict is there tends to be not a lot of conflict between between the um, the Starfleet personnel. Everybody's working together and mostly like each other and things like that, which is something they that the creators of Voyager were saying they wanted to get away from that. They wanted more conflict. Um, but not to say that there wasn't conflict in Taws, because there were. I mean, there, there was even a captain that other. went bad. Oh, come on. They didn't hate each <laughs> other. And and there was an example of a captain that went bad in, in one Taz episode. But for the most part, everybody was buddy-buddy and all worked towards a common goal, um, which is all good. I mean, that's that's all part of the idea that, that mankind can improve, can get better. Um, but... It's also interesting to see some conflict right. too. But but you know, in saying that, there was still was plenty of chance, plenty of stories where humans were the bad guys. You know, mud, and you know there was. Uh, oh well, there's an example. There's there's yeah. other human villains out there. Yeah. That, but but you would think that once they were in Starfleet, they they vetted out all the bad ones. Right, and in ways, this guy's a little bit like mud, um, an entrepreneur. Um, very compromised principles, but at least Mud, uh, at least Mud seems like he was a little less of a. Yeah, he never uh, murdered anybody. Potentially homicidal maniac. Right. Like this guy. Anyway. I was pretty shocked when this guy, you know, killed that guy and then ran off and grabbed a phaser rifle and and I'm thinking, oh man, what what's he gonna do next? Yeah, hey, he's out of control. He's crazy. Yeah. So, and and um, Lebe- I didn't mention this in the synopsis, but Lebec mentions how Beckwith caused a slaughter on a planet. So they don't go into uh, details, but basically it sounds like maybe somebody who got addicted to this stuff did something, triggered uh, some deaths, and it's like, wow, this guy is nasty, bad news, and how did how do you ever get away with that? I mean, I mean, most landing party missions, unless they've got like a shore leave kind of thing going on, you know, everybody's around with each other pretty much, and you're not there forever. And um, how do you end up triggering a slaughter and Kirk doesn't find out right. about it? I don't know exactly, unless they they got it on the news later. In <laughs> right. other news, Theta Theta Three. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't know. So I like the two-page spread that showed the, um, you know, the, the the dream narcotics in action on Lebec. That was pretty cool. I like that. Was it a two-page spread or just one? I thought it was just one page. But yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was two. Well, okay, maybe it was one. Yeah. Or he has multiple faces. Oh, okay. By okay, yeah, it is one page. But my point. I guess part of my point was that you can see Beckwith in the previous panel where Lebec is taking the drug and he's got his arms folded and he's all got that smug look on his face. Mm-hmm. And him in that exact same pose is carried over to the next page, which shows Lebec going uh, freaky. Right. And sounds apparently are going, Ms. It- and... 
It's it's Spock saying Mister, but in his dream state, it's all being distorted and stretched out. Right. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So it's it, and then at the bottom it shows a control panel, and it's like, wait, wait, hold on, what, what? So between the two panels, they're taking you from multiple transitions in Beckwith's quarters, norm, normalty, then Beckwith's ugly face takes you into his. His, his uh, Lebec's uh, altered state, and then uh, and then the control panel at the bottom takes you to the bridge. I thought it was a very interesting uh, transition. No, it's really cool, and I like and yeah. I love I love the picture of the you know the four distorted faces of him while he's going through the the drug because mm-hmm. you know his his right eye or his left eye will be one way, and then his right eye and the left eye of the next face are kind of merged into one. Right, right. And then, then the next eye will be merged into the next face. It, it's a very interesting picture. That is very good. So three different, face, three different, different faces. Three different faces. Well, okay. But my point is three different faces are sharing three eyes, which I think is really interesting. Because the first one is heads up in the air. Uh, right, but it, you know, but, it misaligned with the other ones. I don't, I don't count that that second eye viewable from the left yeah. as part of the other guy's face or the it first. Kind of morphs into the next one. It's it's more elongated. I, I count it. Okay, well, difference of opinion. Uh, it's the last three to the right that I think are are shared between the faces, and I think that's really cool. Well, whatever, three or four doesn't right. matter. The main thing is. Seeing a f- if you focus it on one of the faces and the eyes going in different directions is kind of freaky. Very freaky. <laughs> so, very good work. All right, so you know how we like to point out little, little inconsistencies? Okay. I did find one in this, in this issue. Oh, cool. Where's so, it? right when Lebec's about to get bashed on the head, okay. the, uh, the picture is flipped. So... Uh, the uh, Starfleet oh, emblems yeah. on the wrong side of their chests. Ah, hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see that. Oops, I see that. Yeah, why would they bother with that? Well, they, maybe he painted it one way, and then it was more dramatic if he was going the other direction. So they flipped it. Mm-hmm. That, that's like on the old TV show. That a lot of times they're the. The, the badge will flip to the other side of the page for that exact reason that they're like, oh, well, we want the action to go more this way. So they'll just right. flip the negative and hope nobody notices. <laughs> cool. Oh, so, okay. So was that kind of like a little Easter egg homage to what sometimes happened in the original TV show film? I, I kind of wondered that, but I didn't know for sure. Huh. Regardless, I thought point. it was I thought it was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I, well, I, I also ha- thought it was interesting the the ceiling of the Enterprise corridors. Oh, you you mean the popcorn ceiling? Popcorn yeah. ceiling. <laughs> that was a joke. Oh, uh, joke. You know what popcorn ceilings are, right? Yeah, but I don't I don't okay. see it here. That was a joke. Oh, okay. Okay, go go ahead. Continue. <laughs> well, you never see the ceiling because they didn't. I don't think they made a ceiling for the corridors, right? So in the show, you never see it, but here they have all these low camera angles, and mm-hmm. it's like there's the ceiling consists of like these like 
vents or something like yeah i mean it's it all i mean it all it's almost like there's girders um going across ways through the upper part of the ceiling and then it's kind of like open right uh you know b- between the girders i mean that, that's just the way i'm yeah, describing yeah girders it. is actually pretty but, good like like bulkheads or but some yeah something like that but but talk about a waste of space i mean do you think i mean you would think that space is is even in a big ship like that you know you don't want to waste space it kind of looks like a waste of space from a practicality standpoint but it's pretty cool i i think it's pretty cool i mean if you're going to include the ceiling why make it boring right right agreed no i liked it and i couldn't remember if they ever actually showed that angle in the old show i if they ever showed the ceiling they never showed something as complicated as that okay I don't think. I agree. All right, so you want to talk about the Guardians? Sure. Well, uh, sure, let's talk about the Guardians. Shoot. I was surprised. I was expecting to see the arch, the glowing arch talking. I was not expecting these uh, crystalline-looking giants. Uh, Right, or statues or something. I mean, they they look kind of like white... Most kind of sort of monochrome um, statues, almost. But no, they're they're beings. Uh, they don't don't seem to move around much, um, except when they disappear from the wall they're standing in. Um. So yeah, they they're interesting beings. I mean, they've got pretty much human faces, only very old, and you know the big beards and stuff. So it's not like it's a insectoid guardians, right? You know, right? And they definitely say that this is the the only this is the only place in all the universe where time the time vortex comes in like this, right? Which negates a lot of the expanded universe where there's where there is other guardians, guardians? where there's okay. yeah other guardian archways throughout the universe, right? Gateways, right? Very interesting. Um, in the expanded universe, I was not aware that there were multiple. Was I? Ex- no, I wasn't aware of that. So they have multiple guardians all over the place, kind of like Stargates. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah, yeah Pocket Books did a um, a book series called Gateways, where each era of Star Trek had their own story involving a, a guardian or a gateway. Oh. Hmm. Cool. Including Captain Calhoun. Ah, yes. New Voyages, or... No, not New Voyages. What's yeah, New, new, fr- new, new Frontiers. Frontier? New Frontiers, that's right. New Frontier. Yeah, I'd like to see Calhoun... I would love to see Calhoun pop up in some kind of a... You know, a, a an action video thing. I mean, whether it be cartoon... Um, it'll never happen, but I'd love to see that. Well, maybe somebody will make a fan movie about it. That, that seems to be pretty popular nowadays. Ooh, that's a good point. Yeah, like this new one that they've got set in the uh, Enterprise time frame. Archer's time. Right. That's very interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. Might already be out there. Give it a look. I'll have to, I'll have to do a search on YouTube. <laughs> um, yeah, so these Guardians... Uh, I mean, quite frankly, having it being actual humanoids that are guardians, 
it just makes more sense, doesn't it, than an archway, right? Or or, or a, uh, an irregular oval kind of str- uh, mechanism. Um, right, but if they are guardians, I, you know, they say that they wanted to show um, what they can do, but you think that they would have some way of stopping someone from stepping into it. Yeah, I mean, it, what, they're not very good guardians. No. <laughs> so if anybody came there and said, I want to see it, they would be like, oh, yes, we want to show you. But d- don't right. jump in there. Oh, he jumped in there. Bummer. <laughs> uh, uh, that seemed a little contradictory to me. It did. It did. Uh, I mean, the, these these beings, and they pointed this out in the, in the script or – yeah, in, in the book, but I didn't really go into it in the synopsis. But they're pointing out that these guys have enough technological abilities to um, make the planet habitable, make it warm enough that people could survive on it, uh, make sure there's air, you know, all the life support for a whole planet. So that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty. That's pretty strong technology. You'd think they'd be able to to throw up a uh, a shield or something, yeah, <laughs> over the uh, you know the, the the gateway to the vortex. Right. At least some police tape or something. Come on. Something. Come on. But that wouldn't make it very interesting. That would. Right. Anyway. No, I, I I'm really enjoying this book. Yeah. And, and the artwork to me is fantastic. I. I I yeah. think it looks like William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, um, and even Rand, seeing Rand in it again. Oh, yeah. And doesn't Rand kick butt? Yeah, no, she just grabs that phaser rifle. and Exactly. And we'll see in the next issue, she again, um, well, this is a, this is, I, I'll make this comment in the next issue, okay. but she's very capable. I mean, quite frankly, um... I think the captain's ensign is kind of like an assistant, kind of like a little radar O'Reilly that's like supposed to be helping you with all these minutia while you focus on the big things. Um, and she definitely, you see a dimension of that in at least these first two issues, which is pretty cool. Right. Exactly. And, uh, and she and he have a relationship, like two half. Okay, I'm going to say it now. In this issue and the next issue, it's like the they're like two halves of a whole. Uh, Kirk sees a problem and something uh, either because he's trying to develop her or um, it's just he's very comfortable with her and, and knows she's capable and just says, hey, take care of this problem. Right. And she goes at it like a terrier or like a pit bull. Yeah, a pit bull. Yeah, only a pretty pit bull. And I think that's pretty cool. No, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, which makes me wonder if, if that was her, the original goal of her character and they just never went that route for whatever reason in the original show. Yeah, well, whatever reason is probably that's just not the way things were done back then. I mean, women were pretty much the damsels in distress. Right. Background things, not, not coming to the fore. Um. And even though Star Trek was better about that, they still kept the ladies in a box pretty yeah. much. As uh, far as I knew, watching the old show, her job was to um, get Kirk to sign paperwork. 
<laughs> exactly. And maybe even bring exactly. him coffee a time or two. I can't remember. Ex- I mean, at least they didn't come out and say, at least Kirk didn't say, hey, give me a coffee, will you? Or give me a drink, will you? <laughs> at least they didn't go that far. But, yeah, she was like in the background. She didn't do much. She was eye candy. Right. And then the little the little kind of hints at a relationship or uh, maybe the desire for a relationship that could never actually happen. At least it should. Um, should not. Uh, but, yeah, but elevating her and having her do this kind of thing, I think that's great. I mean, okay, I'm really blowing it with, uh, with my comments for the next <laughs> one. But what I – except for Tasha Yar, except for Tasha Yar – um, and maybe to some degree Judzia, but I really think Tasha Yar was the kind of kick butt female character. The closest thing to how they're depicting Rand in this. Well, I'm going to say number one from the pilot. I mean, she was a very competent. Oh, she was first good. Officer. Yeah, yeah, but they got rid of her. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, they made her a nurse. I mean, the actress. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. But I'm saying I see a lot of that type of, you know, take charge kind of thing in, in this version right. of Rand. Yeah, and the thing is, if you're the first officer, like on the original pilot, uh, number one was, um, yeah, you expect to be taken charge. But it's like, we'll see in the next issue. Um, Kirk says jump, and she says how high, and even though it could mean her death. Right. Um that's that's pretty cool. I'd love to have seen that in the in in the show. But anyway, I have one more thing to say. Okay. Um, love that they had a phaser rifle involved. Taw's original phaser rifle. Love those things. It, it, no matter how awkward they look <laughs> and impractical, those are great. Great space weapons, and I love me some phaser rifle. So I'm glad they had it, but I got to say, so they just keep them stored in in the hallway? Yep, in case of emergency. (laughs) I... I, I'm sure. I'm sure the writer or the artist, whoever decided to put it, probably the writer, writers that put it in the hallway. I'm sure they they realized that was a compromise, but it's like, I don't think they have phasers just hanging out in the hallways. You got to store them somewhere. They well in the armory or something. Yeah, but in the, uh, in Star Trek, they always like just touch a panel on the wall and the gun pops. They out. do. They do. When? I don't know. Doesn't that happen in that? the movies? Now, okay, there was an episode where Geordi happened to have a phaser, like in his, uh, you know, his, his 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 little bureau thing there, next to his bed, right, the little table there. But in general, um, they don't have phasers just hanging around. I I, I think they're in the armory, or they should be anyway. Um, I, I don't remember seeing any that just popped out of a wall. Am I wrong on that? I I, I, th- I thought it showed it, but maybe not. Well. I guess they don't show it that much. But if you're going to keep, I mean, a phaser rifle. If you're going to keep a phaser rifle, okay, well, at least hopefully it's locked. Because they do have like a, like a metal mesh kind of looking thing. That's the, uh, the cover to it. So maybe the security guys uh, have some kind of locking mechanism on it or something. I don't know. It just seems like an odd thing. Right. Which was very handy, this story, I must say. Expeditious. 
Well, he didn't really do anything with it, so I don't. I mean, I don't know why they had to have it there, anyways. Well, that's how uh, Randon and Kirk and Spock got in. Oh, because they blasted the door. They blasted the door. So, so yeah. At first, I was wondering, well, why? I mean, I love seeing the phaser rifle, but why a phaser rifle? Right. Um, and I didn't think that was the kind of thing they just they use that much, and they keep laying around. They just pull it out when there's a big threat or something. Um, but then, you know, they had to cut into the door. Right. And they cut in which, pretty fast. Pretty fast. And interesting. I'll have a comment about that in the next session. <laughs> Me too. And I think, yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Okay. All right. Anything else? Okay. Nope, that's it. Next issue. All right, us. next issue. This came out uh, July of 2014. So the original teleplay was by Harlan Ellison, adaption by Scott and David Tipton, art by J.K. Woodward, letters by Neil Yutaki, and edits by Chris Ryal. So the first cover, um, like the first, like the first issue, it's in the guise of a dog-eared paperback. So uh, in this one, it's more of a blue tint. Uh, the top two-thirds of the page is the title. Below that, we see a shot of Kirk and Spock within a circle of light. And behind that, it seems to be silhouettes of buildings. And then cover B is a less weathered version of cover A, but with a red tint instead of blue. And then the subscription cover is a shot of Kirk and Spock in a twinkling, shimmering effect. Very colorful. So the story continues uh, from the events of last issue. Kirk and Spock are speaking to the Guardians about Beckwith's travel through time. The Guardians state that the timeline has changed, and then they disappear to discuss the ramifications. Rand is ordered to get them all beamed back up to the ship, and when the transport is complete, they find themselves on a pirate ship called the Condor. It seems that in this new timeline, there is not an Enterprise in it. Using a tricorder, Rand is able to overload a nearby console, which then gives Kirk and the rest of the crew a chance to attack the pirates and force them out of the transporter room. Once the crew is alone, Kirk plans to return to the planet and requests that he and Spock travel through time to stop Beckwith. He leaves Rand in charge of the other crew members. They are to defend the transporter room at all costs. And it seems like it will be a fierce battle indeed, since the pirates are already working on melting the doors to get in. Back on the planet, Kirk makes his plea with the Guardians. The Guardians do not want to send him back, since they could damage the timeline even further. Eventually, however, they agree, and Kirk and Spock jump through the time vortex. They appear in 1930 New York where they see men and women in the throes of the Great Depression. A few nearby men see Spock and mistake him for a foreigner that's there to take away their jobs. A mob quickly gathers, and they are all prepared to lynch the alien. Kirk uses his phaser to shoot and dissolve a nearby light pole. This startles the mob long enough for Kirk and Spock to make their escape. After several runs through dark alleys and over wooden fences, they find a basement door. Kirk orders Spock in, and the two will wait it out in there. To be continued. Okay. 
So, this episode, or this issue, um, as far as moving the story along, only a few big things happened to it. Uh, they got down to the planet, or I mean, they, they, well, the main thing is they got to the past. Right. And then they had their first run-ins with the locals. Uh, and then it set us up to meet Edith Keeler, I guess, in the next issue. And, and that's really about it, except for the extra stuff they, they added in, or the extra elements that were there. The pirate stuff. Um, the pirate stuff, which, quite frankly, I thought it was cool and stuff, but I like the way the TV series did it, the, the, ep- the TV episode. Right, they're just because nothing, nothing up there in orbit to beam them up. Exactly. So you remember that uh, when they realize there is no Enterprise, there is no Federation. Who knows what the what the st- status of Earth is? But no help for them from Earth. Uh, you know, if they're not, you know, no no kind of operational Federation or, or Starfleet. And then they had that thing where Kirk says, "I'm like totally alone." And then they kind of do that little. Uh, he looks up, and then it pans up into space, and it's like, they're all alone on their own. Ah! Right. So I think that was really, I thought that was really cool and expeditious. Um, and what they did instead in the original script here with the space pirates is cool, an opportunity for conflict and, and some cool uh, fights and, and, and explosions. But really, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. To the me. pirates just happened to be in orbit at the exact same time that the Enterprise would have been. Exactly. Right. And the Condor, it was called Condor, right. right? The Condor does look, I mean, not 100% like the Enterprise, but the transporter room, it's the, star, it's the Enterprise transporter room uh, with, with differences. You know, if you look at the transporter pad and the lights from above and, or the scanners or whatever they're, they're supposed to be, um, and then the control panel. And, of course, Rand knew how to fix it, so... It is the Enterprise, um, but not. It's some kind of alternate version. It just seems really unlikely. Right. Yeah, and we never see anything but the transporter room. So I, right. I would have really been upset if it showed the exterior and it was you know, a Constitution-class ship. I would have been like, oh, no. Right. Yeah, so best not to go there. Right. No, I, I agree. I mean, it, it, it gives you a firefight, which we didn't have in the in the original. But I love that line when when Kirk and Spock are about to jump through, and he tells Scotty to, uh, you know, because he's leaving Scotty and Ahura there to die. Right? If they don't make it back, you know, if they don't fix the timeline, they're just going to be stranded on this planet with no food and water for the rest of their lives. So right before he jumps into the timeline, he says, you know, wait an appropriate amount of time, and then you know. You you go ahead and try it yourself, you know, right? And you know, or at least jump through and you know live the rest of your life, you know. In the and past, I loved that line. I loved that that you know he's giving that kind of responsibility to Scotty because otherwise he's just ordering them to their deaths by having them wait there. It just was a right. better scene, I thought, than the yeah. big pirate fight. Right, and and. Yes. And the whole idea that Kirk and Spock would go down alone and then leave Rand and the rest of the security people to their fates, um, that, was, that was cool. Because here's that stuff I was talk, referring to earlier. Uh, Kirk, Kirk says to Rand, 
can you hold this room? And then she says, how long? And he says, indefinitely. And without flinching, she says, yes, I can. It's like, that was cool. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I like that moment. However, there are other moments that couldn't happen because of, of the way this was handled. And, and I agree with you. I, I love that idea of them taking turns. That's a good backup plan, too, by the way. Not only to take care of your people, but also to have a backup plan, redundancy, multiple shots at stopping McCoy. This is like, um, Spock and I are going to go down here and go in the past. Could you guys just stay up here and, uh, you know, probably die? Right. That, okay, why? <laughs> I mean, okay, so they didn't want the pirates to follow them down? That, that's what I was thinking. Probably? Right. Okay. So, um, yeah, and, and, and I, granted, I get it. You can't have, um, somebody has to work the controls, right? Right. So, how about one guy volunteers <laughs> to, to die, basically? And everybody else goes down the planet, and after you transport down, you use the phasers to utterly destroy the room, trash the room. Right. Or something, instead of like, uh, Kirk and I, uh, Spock and I are going, and you guys, good luck. Right. The only, the only thing I can think of is that this is going to be a continuing subplot. So there will be a parallel story of what, what's going on on the Condor while they're back Ooh. in the past with, with Edith Keeler. Well, well, that Or at least I hope, uh, at least I hope that's what happens, as opposed to, you know, them just jumping back out of the portal with with Beckwith, and then they're all back on the planet, and we we haven't. Yeah, seen and is it, isn't isn't that going to be interesting? So, if they do come back in the last issue, uh, come back from jumping through, then Rand and the boys are on the sh- the Condor. Mm-hmm. So, are they going to just magically pop into the normal Enterprise? Right, I don't know because uh, they shouldn't because they they were on the planet when time changed which shielded them from the change so now that they're on the exactly they wouldn't be shielded from the time ripples so i don't know what's gonna what's gonna happen so do they disappear because they're like part of the alternate timeline that's gonna go away right it's like huh very yeah that that was the that was what i was thinking too i was just like that makes it a little messier doesn't it? right yeah it it, okay cleaner when you're all you know whoever is affected by the time bubble stays within the right. time bubble but once you start going right. out of it and you have two different things going on it's it's when you get the wibbly wobbly timey wimey <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> so i i guess what we're pointing out is there's lots of things about the original script that was better and this is personal opinion by the way um but there's probably some things in the original story also the the filmed uh episode that at least i like better right so it's kind of like it's it's a mix right and keep in mind that situation. we have not read the rest of the issues so you know True. all of our little things that we're pointing out of as being potential problems it might be rectified and you know addressed we don't know we're just right. totally guessing based on just reading these two individual issues right 
but anyways, I okay. like the well, fight. We'll I like out. the big fight. I like the uh, I like Rand, you know, elbowing that chick in the face. I mean, it, it it's <laughs> really interesting that it's a level of action that was never in that episode of the show. Right. Because I don't think anybody even gets punched in the face at all in that episode. Now that I think about it. Well, I guess the transporter guy did off screen. Yeah, you never saw that though. And then, of course, the bum shoots himself. But oh yeah, yeah. And and when I was watching that, because I, I rewatched the episode yesterday, the uh, the bum shooting himself with the phaser, you know, wouldn't that have ramifications in time? I mean, did that guy have any kids, or would he have had any maybe. kids? Well, yeah. And if he's a bum, maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't straighten himself out, and he just you know dead end there. That's but who knows? coincidental. Well, he's a bum. I mean, but but there were a lot of people that that were on hard times. That when things got better, you know, they they came out of it, and yeah. I'm sure they got gainful employment and everything else. So when so when yeah, World War II kicked in, he probably enlisted, cleaned up his act, became a you know a war hero. War hero. Damn it. He, he he saved hundreds right, now, when he jumped on that grenade. You don't know. Exactly. Don't know. So if Edith Keeler could be such a pivotal point in time, why not this guy? Right. And something I wondered about is, if he shot himself, then did the phaser disintegrate also? They showed it disappear too, so yeah. Okay. Well, they showed it disappear? Well, they showed him they disappear. They showed him disappear, and the, he was and holding they, the phaser, so. Well, and yeah, they didn't have a shot of showing the phaser kind of drop to the ground. Right. So you assume it went away, but... Isn't that interesting? So, which makes sense if you're getting hit with the, something the that's effect, powerful enough to completely disintegrate you and all your clothes and all your equipment, it should disintegrate what you're holding too. Right. I don't. Want, I don't want to get a pro, in a protracted discussion about this, but I think it's a little. If the disintegration beam is going towards you and the device is behind you, it is. The device is behind the direction of the beam. Then is the disintegration effect good enough that it's going to travel up the guy's hand and into the phaser? And I know this is one of those geek things that probably is ridiculous, but um, it's almost like I'm I'm I'm, invi- I'm visualizing like the hand and the phaser being left there like a Star Wars thing, <laughs> twitching as the rest of the body's gone. But I don't know. Right. Well. He 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 got burned up pretty good. So I I'm saying he got, that he got I'm burned up real good. D- disintegrated the phaser. Yeah. And that was a good thing because you don't want phasers sitting around. Right. In somebody will get that translator and, and invent the microchip too early or something. Exactly. Exactly. So So last issue, one phaser rifle, one door. They cut through pretty fast. Yep. This one you've got multiple Big, heavy-looking weapons being brought to bear and starting to shoot at the door, and it only starts being kind of warm. Right, uh, Captain, is the door's kind of hot? They're cutting through. They're cutting through with giant bazooka-looking rifles. Right, and we're being ordered to stay here to defend it with our tricorders, hand phasers. <laughs> well, they had hand phasers, but. Uh, plus, who knows what the, um, you know, what kind of, you know, weapons might have been dropped by the pirates. Right. But, and, and maybe their technology just isn't as good. Although they've got transporters that work. Right. So, 
you know, it's um, it, it is kind of odd. Yeah, because those those things are big. I mean, it's it's kind of like a phaser rifle, only like three times the size. Right, they're huge. And there's two of them just shooting right at the door. So speaking of random phasers, um, when Beckwith jumped through and Kirk shot the phaser into the time vortex, right? Uh, wouldn't it be funny to find out that the real cause of the time distortion was that that phaser went through the time vortex too, and like Beckwith jumps in front of like the president, and then the president gets zapped, so FDR just melts away, and it was all <laughs> Kirk's fault because he tried wow. to Beckwith. That sounds very possible. <laughs> I'm sure it was set to stun, number one, but but good point. I, I, I did not take it that far. I just took it far enough to say, so if the phaser beam goes in, does it come out the other side with Beckwith? Right. Um, but I must say, I wasn't thinking it was going to hit the president. <laughs> good point, though. Well, you don't know where it's going to go. It could hit one of those dinosaurs. You don't know. Man. Yes. Now, as yes. far as time travel goes, I do really enjoy the uh, the butterfly effect concept that you know every little thing you do in the past, you know, could have big ramifications in the future. Right. Um. So in re- in that regards, I do like you know that you can save Edith Keeler and, and you know eventually that will have some sort of ramifications. Now, I think that it's a little bigger. You know, I, I never really understood how she. Her death, her life prevented uh, the whole Federation and World War Two, and uh, from the Allies lost because she was promoting peace and and she was that big of a yeah. voice that it delayed us entering the war. Right. Uh, I don't. And if it. it wasn't if it wasn't for the U.S. jumping into the war with personnel and materials, uh, it was the intact manufacturing might of the U.S. as well as the people that really turned the tide against the Axis. But, I mean, they, yeah, okay, so you heard the explanation. I mean, you just watched the TV episode. Right, I just don't buy it. Um, so you heard the explanation, just don't buy it. Right. Well. Do you buy it? Yeah, you, I mean, think, that, you think that she could have had that big of a sway in global politics? Well, it didn't have to be global. It just had to be U.S., um, and I thought it was plausible. Okay. I mean, there were a lot of people in the U.S. that did not want to get involved in another war. We just went through World War One not that long ago, and here's World War Two. There was a big sentiment in the U.S. not to get involved in this war. So because of Edith Keeler, Japan didn't attack well, Pearl Harbor? Cause... No, 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 no. No, actually, I mean... There was a strong anti-war sentiment already in the in the nation. Of course, there was. And really, a lot of a lot of people say it was. Well, it was the attack on Pearl Harbor that finally got us up uh, off our butts and into the war. Right. If that event didn't happen, um, who knows how late we would have been delayed getting into right. it? Right. And definitely, England wouldn't have been able to survive. France was already taken over. I mean. Um, right. Hitler could have been pretty successful. But what I'm saying is that I don't think Edith Keeler being alive would have prevented Pearl Harbor, and then she would have just been yet another voice of all the other people that are anti-war yep. That, yep. that would have gotten shot down in the 
we would have right. joined the war just just as we did before. Yeah. Yeah, and and the whole thing, who knows? It's all theoretical. Sure. Um, I think it's plausible enough for you to accept the premise and enjoy the enjoy the story. Oh, I'm not saying but I didn't yes, enjoy. Yes, I do agree. I didn't say I didn't enjoy it. I do agree. I said didn't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. I understand what you're saying. But I get the sentiment. I mean, it, it, I would have rather them said, you know, because she died, you know, she has a kid and then that kid, you know, caused somebody else to not get married and have a kid that should have and, you know, and in World War 3, you know, her her interactions caused the ripple there or something. It's just seemed too immediate after her death to already have that big of a ripple that and the ripple being something that she really didn't have anything to do with you know the she wasn't part of the war council or anything no so i don't know splitting hairs i enjoyed the show i enjoy the story so and i enjoyed the concept of uh, the butterfly effect that's all i was getting at yeah yeah and and i definitely understand um how it's a bit of a uh a... A tough thing to swallow that she could have that much effect. Cool. So, what do you think about New York? The the New York scene and well, the mob. I I thought that okay. Oh, am I jumping it too far? I, I think it, no, no, that's fine. Um, I thought I thought it was very interesting the kind of fear mongering that was going on um, by that particular guy and probably others that were saying. Uh, you know, immigrants are ruining it for real Americans. And of course, the immigrants he was talking about probably were Irish, Chinese, um, and other people coming in probably from Europe. Um, and, and those are all the people that we think of as like, well, yeah, I mean, they're real Americans. So I thought it was very interesting how the arguments they were presenting then are being made today. Uh, the circumstances are not 100% the same, but pretty similar. Um, and I'm just wondering how much uh, adjustment uh, the Tipton brothers were doing in in what was happening here as opposed to what the original script said. Because I, you know, the orig- if the original script was written exactly this way, then it's like, wow. Uh, that's amazingly applicable to today, right? And the whole big immigration debate that's going on right now. So I thought that was kind of convenient, right? But I, you um, know what? I think that it probably was there. I mean, I think yeah. people really did have always felt that way. I mean, yeah, go back as far as you want to go, and everybody wants to blame any hard times they have on on, on people, on, not them. Yeah, right. A group that isn't. You. Right. These people are coming in and doing the jobs we don't want to do for less money than we would want to do them for, so they are to blame for me to not work. You know, that, that's... Right. It's a, uh, unfortunately, it's a very common threat. And then and then to get all worked up into this mob that's ready to lynch Spock just because they think he's a foreigner. Yeah. Uh, y- you, would, you would hope that that's not, not the way people really would be, but you always see these mobs and stuff, and you got to think, these guys are probably not not bad people, but then they get worked up and start doing bad yeah, things. Yeah, plus, yeah, plus they're in a very difficult situation. I mean, they don't have jobs. They can't feed their kids, right? Exactly. Uh, 
big time stress. Sure. But um, yeah, unfortunate, an unfortunate side of a humanity. But the tone is so different than the TV show because the TV show they come back and it's almost like this comical interaction with the police officer. Oh yeah, you know, oh he's he's got caught in a rice picker when he was a kid. You know, it, yeah, it's this, oh, yeah, it's this light. He got caught the, in a mechanical rice picker. Right. It's like, well, hold on, isn't that? I mean, in today's politically correct to a fault environment. Isn't that almost racist? <laughs> that line. I mean, it's like, ooh, ooh, that's a little racist. Come on, Kirk. But of course, a totally different time right. than than today. But it's like, ooh, that's a, ooh, that didn't. That, that's. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. But then again, uh, I mean, there probably is a mechanical rice picker in. in... <laughs> You know, I started. I started. I started to get. You know, I was like, I can't believe they just said that. But then I thought, well, there probably really is one, and you know, <laughs> I guess you could really get your ears caught into it. I don't know. I guess. Uh, luckily, a missionary that happened to be a plastic surgeon. Yeah, it was. It was very different. Very different. Right. But then it ends the same way with them. Having Just to run, run around, around the alley. And, and, and quite frankly, that's a little bit easier to take than the extreme reaction that the crowd had here. I mean, especially... At, okay. So Kirk really did shoot his phaser and disintegrated a light post. Right. Of some kind, right? Yep. It's like, okay, you really shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> you know, uh, non-interference, don't mess with... You know, the butterfly effect, don't mess with things. And you're demonstrating high tech in front of the apes. It's like, uh, not the best idea. Right. And quite frankly, if you saw lightning come out of somebody's hand and disintegrate a solid object in front of you, would you be running after them? I don't think so. Well, yeah, you would, because you would want to get the lightning for yourself. Well, oh. <clears throat> Okay, uh, so let's say that that was their motivation. Again, not a good idea, Kirk. Uh, I mean, I, I guess you needed a diversion that would allow you and Spock to, to slip away. But it's like, wow. Right. Even watching the original show, you know, I was thinking, well, they just ran away from a cop. There was a lot of people that saw them. People are yeah. going to be talking in that neighborhood about the strange guy with pointed ears who ran away from the cop. You know, that would have made the buzz around town so that maybe even somebody who goes to the mission with Edith Keeler would would have, hey, you're the guy that ran from the cops. Yeah. But here it's even more so. You're the guy who disintegrated the light pole on 52nd Street, you know. Yeah. That is going to make the rounds in the gossip. Sure. And and obviously there were a lot lot more people to see it. There was a mob to see it. Yeah. Good point. So, last thing I have to say is, wasn't Kirk and Spock really spry <laughs> as they were getting away? I mean, they were going over fences and, and jumping like the $6 million man, or, uh, you know, they were just, woo, ah, they, they were really going. Yeah, I really like that shot of, of Spock almost hurtling over the, uh, the top of that fence. Yeah, yeah c- kind of cool. But not, yeah, it's cool and... And visually kind of, you know, kind of stimulating or something, but not very realistic. Yeah, there was probably a big tr- 
trash can or something on the other side of the fence that we don't see that they're climbing up on first. Yeah, or you know maybe some discarded uh, trampoline, trampoline. Yeah, that uh, <laughs> they bounced up on. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, an old discarded box spring. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's funny. So. Yeah. Uh, my, so that's all. My last say. comment is the Guardians. Ooh. They needed Spock's tricorder readings to get an exact or a close to proximity, uh, a close to time for when Wentworth went through Beckworth, whatever his name is. Beckworth. Beckwith. Beckwith. I mean, it just seems kind of odd that. I mean, why would Spock? Any of Spock's technology help out the Guardians? They they are exactly. the masters of time and space. And they've had a lot of time to get practiced right. at it. That, that, yeah, that was another one of the things so. about the original show that I thought was funny is that Spock takes his tricorder with the readings that of when to jump through the timeline with him. Yet they do tell Scotty to try it himself, but they don't ever give Scotty the same readings to uh, know right. when to jump. So good yeah. thing they didn't need Scotty as a backup plan after all. <laughs> exactly. Scotty would be back in the Roman times. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I think that was a little more. I, I thought that was kind of plausible what they did there. So Spock was recording history, living history. Um, so it kind of made sense that they could use that to zoom in or hopefully zoom in on exactly when McCoy was going to be coming back. Um, so I kind of like that, uh, where I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. Maybe they're going to do the same thing: create a computer uh, to be able to use the readings. Uh, but I, uh, I, I like that a little better the way they did it in the TV show. Right. I thought. Well, I would. But I would have just rather had the the guardians send them back, saying, "Hey, you're gonna, you might be off a week or so. So good luck." You know. Well, yeah, which is basically yeah, which is basically what they did in the TV show. Right. So well, um, no, the TV show it was all 100 percent chance that they had to jump in. Here it was the Guardian said that based on your reading, Spock, we're going to put you in about a week. I would have just not, I just don't want oh, the Spock. Yeah, in there. I just want the Guardians to say, hey, we can send you back about a week, week or so, maybe maybe a year before you know, so that you can fix it before he does anything. Um, agreed. Except if they're that all-powerful, it's like, um, why the approximation? Because uh, they got to have time to meet Edith Keeler. That's why. <laughs> I understand from a, a narrative standpoint. Um, and, and maybe these guardians really are just guardians. I mean, apparently they're the guys with the uh, rewind and fast-forward buttons. And that's about it. And that's about it. You know, good luck. You know, I, I just got these two controls here, and uh, that's it. Right. You're, out, you're on your own as far as exactly when you jump. Sorry. Right. And after rewatching um, City at the Edge of Forever, my previous yeah. comments where I keep saying, you know, I don't understand why they don't put restrictions on that planet like they do, you know, Talos 4. Oh right, yeah. Yeah, they definitely they don't even say anything about what they're going to do after the show's over. Just, no, no, nothing. I mean, they just leave it. Well, there's so many things they come upon um, that they just like. Okay, okay, uh, we're going to go on now. Yeah, but this is universe shattering type technology here. Yeah, it is. 
anyways, I, I, I just, I think these guys are so much worse than the, the Talosians. Yet they always make a big deal that Talos 4 is the only death penalty planet. Right. Well, yeah. Um, the Talosians are, are obviously directly dangerous. And they kidnapped a Starfleet officer. But this, somebody could go back and totally ruin time. I agree. But the Enterprise can go back in time. <laughs> I mean, any starship, any, any ship that does the slingshot effect can go back in time. It's like, ugh, that, that's a can of worms. How do you control that? That's when you need the temporal police. There you go. Exactly. Jean-Claude Van Damme and the temporal piece there. Oh, those were time cops. Well, same thing. Right. Same thing, different words. <laughs> so uh, many incarnations of that kind of thing. Right. Uh, well, well, so did you ever see um, that Ethan Hawke movie that came out uh, just Oh, no, you told me about it. I have not watched it. So it's it, Predestination. That's the name of it. So... That's the same kind of idea. Uh, some kind of police force, cops, whatever, uh, that go ahead and kind of uh, make sure that people don't do uh, dangerous things with the technology of uh, time travel. Right. I'll have to give that a look. Anyway. That is a really cool movie because it's, well, whatever. I think we discussed this before. So the main point is, uh, yeah, there's lots of examples of... Uh, of that kind of uh, official body right. keeping people from messing around with uh, time travel to everyone's detriment. Okay, I do have one more thing to say. Go for it. When they go through the time vortex, there's one cool panel where it shows uh, Kirk and Spock going into it from the other side. And it's kind of like a rainbow effect. Right. So they've got, uh, you know, green, blue, violet, whatever. Uh, vertical kind of bars so it's like a rainbow kind of thing and I thought that looked cool and it totally reminded me of some of the Star Trek Taws um, movie posters, the movies Right, yeah, like the motion picture movie, I think Exactly. Is it motion picture that did that? I it was, or, or okay. it might have been it, the Search for Spock I was thinking Search for Spock, but who knows the main point is, there was a, a really great poster that had that kind of, same kind of effect and I got to think that uh, J.K. liked that and wanted to use it um, in this because it, it looks good, and uh, I thought it was kind of cool. Agreed. I agree 100%. Yeah, I, I like that visual better than the next one, which was kind of like a black and white negative of it on the next page. Right, with right. The colored one with the with the... Silver all around it from the Guardian itself was really cool. Right. Yeah. Wunderbar. Nah. So it should be real interesting. Okay, so um, it's going to be uh, – I'm looking forward to the next three issues. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it too. Uh, when they originally announced this as being a five-parter, I thought, well, man, they're going to really be padding, padding it. But uh, from what I've gathered – they're they're pretty much doing it exactly the way it was in the in the script. They're not they're not uh, you know they're not making a abridged adaptation. They're making an adaptation. So right, it, it's interesting that he had that many subplots going on. You know, with the pirates and all that other stuff. 
Right. So, again, kind of a long uh, script for an hour-long TV show. Um, so they're definitely not doing a Peter – they're not Peter Jacksonizing it. <laughs> I guess not. Let's make this a five-parter and stick all this stuff in that had nothing to do with the original Tolkien book. All right. Yes. Okay. So – so next, uh, so next week we will be uh, wrapping this up. Indeed, so. indeed. Wunderbar. Can't wait. Good. All right. Well, then um, we'll go ahead and close up shop and catch everybody up next week. Great. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on the review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic. Second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.